Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Nathan Oblack. Hello and welcome to the podcast for cultural reformation. I'm Nathan Oblack and I'm joined once again by Ryan Aris, Joe Boot, and Joe's dog, Cromwell, sitting at my feet. And Cromwell isn't our only special guest here in the Knox Cellar today. We've also got Michael Thiessen back on the podcast. Glad to have you back, Michael. <laughs> How did I get introduced after Cromwell the dog? <laughs> Thanks, Nate. Well, and from that, uh, we'll jump into our discussion. And our topic today is one that's been discussed widely, and that's civil disobedience. And uh, we all know well that. Uh, Scripture uh, tells us that we need to be subject to governing authorities, that we need to submit to our leaders, to be submissive to rulers. So why are we discussing civil disobedience? Uh, And really, why don't we right off the bat even define what is civil disobedience? Well, I think the reason we're at the point where we're discussing civil disobedience at the moment is because it's becoming a more and more prescient issue for churches in the Western context. Of course, this has been a constant issue for churches in many parts of the world. If you're in China, North Korea, many parts of the Far East, the Middle East, um, parts of Asia, and you're part of an underground church movement, then um, this is is nothing new. But for us right now, uh, the question of um, when, how, and the legitimacy of disobeying um, civil authority is coming to the fore because of these uh, rolling lockdowns, which began uh, before Easter, and nine months later are continuing with no sign of letting up through Christmas and uh, on into the new year. So it's becoming something that's being discussed in various parts of the church here in the United States, in England, uh, and um, here in Canada. So, you know, all of North America, it's becoming increasingly relevant and um, around Europe. Well, and I think we can begin by giving our listeners an idea of what are uh, some of these regulations that have been put in place here in Ontario and some of the acts that are uh, governing all of this uh, oversight. And one of them is something that uh, we certainly hear a lot about, and that's Section 22 of something called the Health Protection and Promotion Act. And I'm going to read that to us, and uh, I'll quote it here. A medical officer of health, in the circumstances mentioned in subsection 2, we'll get to that in a moment, by a written order may require a person to take or to refrain from taking any action that is specified in the order in respect of a communicable disease. And uh, it alludes to subsection 2, and that's taken from the Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act. And that reads, The purpose of making orders under this section is to promote the public good by protecting the health, safety, and welfare of the people of Ontario in times of declared emergencies in a manner that is subject to the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And I know that right there is something that we hope to dig into in today's podcast. Yeah, so... Uh, This was, I think, important at the moment because uh, some of the chatter, let's say, some of the uh, articles and podcasts that are common fare out there at the moment in Canada in the Christian community are referring to uh, the question of churches meeting uh, or gathering in homes or gathering in their own buildings at this time uh, if they're in a particular zone, the gray zone. Uh, as an act of civil disobedience. And I think, you know, as we discuss this, I mean, okay, if people want to characterize it that way, um, we'll come on to the issue of civil disobedience in just a moment. But I think at this stage, we would say that's a mischaracterization of what's going on when the church continues to meet. Uh, The the, common definition of civil disobedience would be a violation of, of a legal ordinance or statute. Uh, this has got nothing to do with statute law. Um, it is a kind of ordinance 
but this is not a these are not criminal laws this is not a um these are not federal laws so it's not part of the criminal code um these are regulations that are being passed down through health authorities um where actually elect some of the elected officials are actually sort of kicking responsibility downward to the health boards um to introduce these regulations um and their legality is actually yet to be tested in the courts now the what you've just read there nathan references the charter and our position at the moment would be that churches who do gather in defiance of these regulations are upholding the law that it is actually an act of both obedience to god and to the highest law of the land to exercise your freedom of worship and freedom of assembly and the courts are yet to rule on whether these punitive measures these fines and tickets and so forth are in fact lawful now they're going to have to rule soon because multiple cases are being filed in various provinces but right now the the legality of these things is yet to be tested in the court and uh, just to remind people challenging a given law or a given policy in a representative democracy is not a challenge to the basic authority of government. All of us around this table um, and those with whom we've been involved recently in, in working on these issues, these constitutional lawyers that we're working with, they uphold the law. They're not opposed to basic constitutional, legal, lawful government. And in fact, a constitutional lawyer is in some respect uh, like a lesser magistrate within the reformed tradition. They are there to interpret the law and to take issues of questionable legality to the courts. That's the way our system works. So every time something you know like this comes up at the moment, you have all of these people in the background and pastors and some more prominent than others crying civil disobedience. Why now? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, as though something criminal were happening. Um, okay, newsflash. This is not federal criminal law. These are regulations, the legality of which is yet to be determined by the courts. This is unprecedented territory that we're actually in. And we are not in a constitutional democracy in questioning regulations that can, you can be given a parking ticket for, a fine for, even if it's a heavy fine. Uh, this is not a challenge to the basic authority of government, which is, of course, what Romans 13 is about uh, in terms of submission to lawful authority. In addition, the Christians and the churches who are questioning this are not only working with constitutional lawyers, they are supported by and in tune with elected officials in our provincial parliament who are also challenging the legality of these measures. So let's not uh, get out ahead of ourselves here at the moment when churches are simply gathering for worship or people gathering their homes for a home group and a Bible study in violation of this uh, regulation, as though suddenly Romans 13 is, is being violated and is right set center stage at the table. No, it isn't. We'll come to Romans 13. But let's just make sure we're characterizing the present situation correctly. No, I, I think that's really important, Joe, when you said the courts have not ruled on this. You've talked about some of that um, further ongoing evidence. You know, when we're having this discussion, we are in line with the uh, way that the Reformed tradition has taken Scripture and then tried in real life and real time to wrestle through these things. So the first thing is, um, is it the government's responsibility to keep me healthy from a virus? Um, when I think of civil government and, uh, you know, reading the institutes a little bit today, you know, um, Calvin says civil government uh, has its appointed end. And its appointed end is to protect the outward worship of God to defend sound doctrine of uh, piety, to uh, adjust uh, our life in society for men, to form social behavior, civil righteousness, 
to reconcile us to one another, to promote general peace and tranquility. That's typically what we would all think about when we think of government. We would think the government's there to uphold law and to punish evil. We're going to get to Romans 13 and not to tell my dad or my mom how to stay healthy. Uh, I think we've got fitness nuts to do that. You know, maybe Ryan can help us out with that. So, um, so the, number one, we, we're not even necessarily concerned with civil, civil disobedience yet because the courts haven't um, judged on this, but we're exploring the idea of, do they have any right to be doing what they're doing anyways? And then the second part of that is within, you know, within the reformers, the Puritan tradition, we have the ability to speak to our, 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 our judges and our magistrates. We are given freedom. Uh, again, uh, we see time and time again throughout history where uh, Christians in different forms spoke to their magistrates. So, you know, the command in scripture, you know, to turn the other cheek is a, a command of, of the spirit. But it doesn't mean we can't have a good, healthy, hearty, respectful conversation that happens to be in discussion about a ticket we just got. Uh, so I think those, those two things fall right within the realm of, you know, where we've lived historically as Christians and how uh, we've seen so much of our uh, philosophy of life affect this country, you know, we're just not ready to throw in the towel yet and say uh, we're doing something illegal. Uh, does anybody need to clarify that for me today? Yeah, I think at this point, um, the uh, it, it's it remains to be seen whether the courts will uphold a single one of these fines, these tickets, um, because what I've said, these are this is not the criminal code. This is not federal law. Uh, these are these are regulations. There are elected officials, MPPs, who are openly working against these regulations. Um, there are there are constitutional lawyers who are in the process, and in fact, cases have already been filed, and they'll be uh, beginning to be heard in January against the provincial governments across this country. So it is premature for at times hysterical individuals to be crying civil disobedience uh, about uh, churches meeting, uh, restaurants opening, and so forth. People are contravening orders, the legality of which is yet to be determined. And that's what it means to live in, in a constitutional democracy. You've got elected officials that you work with. You've got constitutional lawyers that you work with. Nathan is correct in citing uh, there with respect to Section 22 that these are subject to the Charter. We're in untested legal waters. Now, of course, it may come to the point where the courts do rule on this and they say, no, these regulations, these tickets, they're lawful. Now, at that point, uh, to continue to act in violation of them, I would say, moves us into the territory of the formal territory of uh, civil disobedience um, because the constitutionality then would have been determined rightly or wrongly, let's be honest, uh, by the courts. Courts aren't infallible. They can make mistakes. Courts can become oppressive. Uh, governments can become oppressive. But we will at least know whether formally or not we're talking about civil disobedience. I think um, too many people have got a head of steam on and are flapping in the background about civil disobedience um, and, and endlessly citing Romans 13 out of context without exegeting it properly. Um, and we're not actually even there yet. So I think that is important for people to understand. And Michael, I think you're right in pointing out that, you know, this, um, this is very much the Western tradition that comes down to us from Calvin and then through the, through the Puritans. That's what the English constitutional settlement, the British North America Act, the situation in the, uh, the United States is, is actually all about. So when we uh, when we look at these regulations that are being imposed and we're questioning the validity of them and questioning whether or not they violate the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, why why aren't we doing that? With uh, you hear the example often raised of seatbelts, right? They're for our safety. Why aren't we crying out 
Uh, I'm not wearing a seatbelt. Uh, this is a violation of my liberty. Maybe we can lay out some distinctions between these regulations that are coming down now versus really what, what I think and most of us think is probably a lot of straw man examples. Um, what's, what's the difference here? Why are we really digging into this and questioning these, these regulations? Well, uh, first, when I was growing up in England, uh, there were no seatbelt regulations. So that's, that's relatively new. Um, you know, I, I'm not saying they're wrong uh, or unhelpful. I'm just saying that, you know, in, my, in living memory, as I grew up, there, there were no, no seatbelt regulations. Traffic was moving a lot slower. Now, of course, there were some nasty accidents and uh, it meant that um, people were, th were thrown out of the vehicle. Sometimes they were thrown clear and actually you survived because you were thrown clear. But more often than not, you may have died in a high-speed incident. But um, roads have changed. Uh, the situation on the road has changed. And um, you, know, you can get the police can give you a ticket for you're not committing a criminal offense, but you can get a ticket for, for not wearing your seatbelt because you're also endangering other people's lives potentially. If you don't wear a seatbelt in the back of the vehicle, for example, and you are thrown forward in an accident, you can actually kill the driver you know, or the, or, the, or the person in the passenger seat accidentally. But I think a more important distinction is this. Um, wearing a seatbelt or not wearing a seatbelt is not one of the fundamental freedoms guaranteed by the Charter. We're not talking about here, that's not, wearing, wearing or not wearing a seatbelt is not a, one of the, the oldest free institution in the history of the Western world. It's not a sphere of authority. There's no sphere of seatbelt wearing, the sphere of the car, right? There, there is a, we've talked a lot about sphere sovereignty and I think probably introduced a lot of people to the concept of sphere sovereignty. So they are now talking about it. Um, and the, 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 the creational principle of sphere sovereignty is that God has established these different spheres of authority which have their own, their law spheres to themselves, and they have their own jurisdiction and area of competence. Um, so those sorts of health and safety regulations simply don't are, are non sequiturs when it comes to trying to make. That's a, the, the, it's a, it's a comparing apples with oranges to compare a regulation that shuts down the in, the institutional life of the church, and a regulation that says you ought to wear a seatbelt when you're in your car. Um, and most people who value self-preservation will put their seatbelt on. Well, and I think that um, when we talked earlier about do, do these health re regulations, and I made the joke about my mom and dad, you know, is it the government's job to keep my family healthy? Like we do see uh, within scripture some examples of laws of restraint, uh, build a fence around the top of the roof of your house so that nobody goes to the edges and follows off, uh, falls off. That's why we have balconies. That's why we have seatbelts. We can see those examples within scripture. Yeah, Ironically, avoiding, avoiding um, a criminal kind of negligence. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And, and these health measures are in direct contravention to what scripture says on how you deal with healthy and sick people. If you have sick people, you quarantine them, you operate with some level of covering the lower part of their face, and you, uh, uh, you have... You, uh, you have some social distancing going on. It, it, scripture says nothing about what we do with perfectly healthy people other than we let them live their lives. So I, I, think, I think even though we are trying to explore this world, we're also just trying to be very um, faithful to Scripture. And faithful to, you know, we, we believe that we need to see the examples in Scripture. We believe that we need to see the commands in Scripture. We need to be able to infer things from Scripture to apply. So Again, that's a, a wonderful way for us to balance. Well, why do you care about building code and you don't care about this? Well, going to what Joe's point is, you've got some infringements that Scripture would never allow. The canceling of the proclamation of the resurrection of the dead in order to keep people safe is nothing, uh, or is nothing that Scripture would permit or is never found in Scripture. Yeah, and we can, and we can, I think, circle back around to that when we consider, you know, what are the conditions for civil disobedience. But I think you, you know, you raise an important point when you uh, mentioned um, what uh, Leviticus says about um, the quarantine of people with serious infectious diseases uh, for a short period of time till they can show that they are clean. And uh, I was having a discussion with um, 
you know, theologian recently about this, who's tried to sort of say, well, you know, but it does, yeah, quarantine is sick, but it doesn't say anything about the healthy. Um, that doesn't mean there should never be a time when we don't quarantine the healthy. Well, I mean, that's just an argument from silence. I mean, you can't, you know, you could, if you could take almost any requirement in scripture and make up then some caveat as to why uh, there is some much more expansive uh, uh, thing that the state could do um, behind this uh, basic idea. But look, there are two types of people when it comes to sickness. There's the sick and there's the healthy. Okay, so scripture says, if you're sick with a, an infectious disease, a serious, a serious infectious disease, quarantining for a while for the good of others is good. The, the notion that that leaves the door open for the, for the, don't forget, unprecedented mass quarantining of healthy populations is absurd. And to try and to make a, 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 an argument from silence from the Bible, this would somehow be endorsed by a Christian view of reality, I think is strains all credulity. And um, I think it's important that we actually engage what the Old Testament uh, the Older Testament has to say about these issues, because after all, these things were given by God, unless anybody needs a reminder, that when God speaks to a people about their social life, God gives these laws. And whilst we can say that they were living in an agrarian society and there are, and there are uh, various things that were fitted specifically to their life, which of course we recognize, that's why the Reformers and the Puritans spoke about the general equity of God's law. It's why Calvin preached numerous sermons through the book of Deuteronomy. It's why he preached through the law of God and its practical application. That's why the Puritans did it constantly. So we can look at these laws and mine them for the, the principles of equity for today, even though there is not a one-to-one -one correspondence between the 21st century and the life of a, a, a nomadic people in the land of Palestine. So let's, let's, let's make sure that in these discussions as well, we take everything the Bible's got to say and take it seriously and recognize that it has a, a meaningful bearing on the situation. And has this not been the habit of man throughout all of history to take God's laws, put them on a shelf and ignore them, and then to create laws that they think are wonderful and to replace them? So. Well, that's precisely what Jesus you know. says. I think in Matthew 15 and Mark 7, um, you you made void the law of God that's right. by your tradition. Yeah. So, you know, people sometimes think that Jesus was squabbling with the Pharisees and the scribes and arguing with them because they loved the law too much. Nonsense. That's right. He said, you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. He corrected their misunderstandings and misinterpretations of the law, and they're setting the law of God aside in favor of their own cultural tradition. And I think we have to bear that in mind as well when we, when we come to the word of God and recognize what, uh, what Christ is doing. Let's, let's, let's not fall into that um, terrible trap of setting aside the law, which Jesus said, not one punctuation mark in Matthew 5 is going to be fall aside until everything is accomplished. Till heaven and earth pass away, his word isn't going to pass away. So That's let's right. grapple with it properly. Yeah. So all that to say, we don't think we're quite yet at civil disobedience. Is that what we're... I think in terms of our where we're at right now in Canada with the church meeting, we would say, I think when we're not there yet. Right. And I would, uh, thinking about seatbelts, thinking about our historical context and where we've come from, this, the seatbelt analogy is an interesting and useful one, Nate, uh, because that's the law, a law of the land that our generation inherited. We don't, uh, we've never been in a society where that was not the case that we didn't have to or were, or were compelled to wear seatbelts. But we've got, uh, we've got freedoms and rights and liberties on the table now that others are trying to withdraw. That uh, you know, there's there's a, a meaningful struggle mm -hmm. going on right now that we can do something about right it's, it's conceivable that you could make a case for for not being forced to wear seat belts but is that is that really the need of the hour i don't know <laughs> yeah the question of relevance comes yeah. up right uh, you know and i think you're right uh look 
we're in a cultural moment, unprecedented in Canadian legal history. Mm-hmm. In fact, unprecedented in not just in living memory, in terms of the, sh- the mass shutdown of the church for months on end, limitations placed by the state on the church for nine months or more, rolling lockdowns. This is unprecedented in our history. Mm-hmm. And freedoms that already exist are being challenged. Now, some recent constitutional research, Ryan, um, and very original research has been done by a number of legal scholars in this country. It's just coming out in a book called um, Forgotten Freedoms. I believe it's being published by the Christian Legal Fellowship. I know our friend Derek Ross has um, contributed to that, as is one of our fellows, Andre Schutten. Um, but multiple legal scholars saying, look, these, these basic charter freedoms have been neglected and an insufficient amount of work has been done on them. Vision of government. Can you imagine going from Calvin's time where he's saying stuff like the role of the government is to defend sound doctrine, the role of the government is to uh, perpetuate civil righteousness, uh, to help reconcile one another? Like those things that I mentioned earlier. And and it, we really have adopted a very near communistic idea of uh, the world rather than a Christian idea. And mm-hmm. it's going to take us time to explore this because, you know, when we're talking about health, we're all, we're all in this room wrestling through how far, how not so far, all those types of things. But can you imagine the reformers looking at us, the, you know, Luther confronting the Catholic church and, uh, you know, saying, you know, here on the word of God and my conscience, I stand and I can stand no, uh, no, I can other. Do no other, I can do no other. Um, to, yeah, we're going to cancel church so that everybody stays home and is really safe from a for months from, on end from a, Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So I think we've established that we're not quite at the stage where this is civil disobedience, but I think now is a good time to maybe address, uh, the issue of when ought we to be civilly disobedient? Uh, when is this the faithful response uh, to what's happening in in our society and culture? So I think um, it's important at this point to to comment on Romans thirteen and the reformational tradition in in responding to that and the, na- the nature of it. Um, it's interesting that both the English Revolution, uh, which was over. Well, really, the king trying to levy taxes for his wars without calling parliament. Um, and then the American Revolution, which was about uh, the, the the colonists not paying the uh, the stamp tax to the British crown. And that led to war. Um, can you imagine what they'd have done if the British crown had shut down all the churches in, uh, in, 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 in the colonies? <laughs> I mean, they... They went to war over the stamp tax. Uh, so, so it's probably helpful to just think for a minute about um, the limits of the state. Because what we've said many times, and it bears repeating, is that the idea that God would ordain government, which he has, ordained, ordain authority, ordain the institution of civil rule. And let's be careful that we understand that. What scripture says is that God has ordained the institution of civil government. Not that he um, is a is is a fan of every despot that he's placed every despot by his um, covenantal will into a position of authority to oppress people, right? Um, he's ordained uh, all authority. Scripture says is from God. Paul says that in Romans thirteen. All authority is from God. The only legitimate authority is authority that's come from God, and that means it must submit itself to God. I've said before that Romans thirteen is ultimately about man's propensity to rebel against God's ordinance. So uh, it's important to, 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 to recognize that uh, the sphere of government, the idea that God would have given such an expansive authority to civil government and yet not limit it is ridiculous. Uh, of course, God has given very real limit to government. Now, I just want to take a couple of historical examples because there are those who think that... Um, they are within the reformed tradition in in not um uh disobeying government and 
bowing and scraping to every edict of civil government. So I just want to read something really, it's very brief from the legacy of John Calvin, which was written by David Hall on the uh, Calvin 500th anniversary. It's about his influence on the modern world. And it's PNR publishing. And um, he says this about the freedom of the church, which I thought was interesting in terms of Calvin, because of course that's the issue that we're actually talking about, the freedom of the church in, in, in relation to civil disobedience. He says, less than two years after Calvin's arrival in Geneva, he was exiled from the city. The struggle that brought about this result was an important one involving whether the church and her ministers could follow their own conscience and authority or whether the church would be hindered by state or other hierarchical interference. Calvin and William Farrell, pastoring the Genevan churches, declined to offer communion to the feuding citizenry in 1538, lest they heap judgment on themselves. So there you've got the church acting as a government. It refuses to give communion to this uh, citizenry feuding with one another. And I can continue quoting now. In return, the city council exiled the two men for insubordination on April 18th, 1538. In 1541, however, Calvin was implored to return to Geneva. Hall goes on, he says, uh, Calvin also insisted that the church be free from political interference. Separation of jurisdictions, not a yearning for theocratic oppressiveness, helped to solidify the integrity of the church too. Calvin and Farrell's first priority upon their re-engagement in Geneva was the establishment of the protocols of Calvin's ecclesiastical ordinances, a procedural manual which prescribed how the city churches would supervise the morals and teaching of its own pastors without hindrance from other authorities. The priority that Calvin assigned to this work shows how important it was for him that the church be free to carry out its own affairs unimpeded by the state. And he concludes this section by saying, a church free from external hierarchical or civil control was a radical and lasting contribution that Calvin made to the modern world. When the church is effective at promoting her God-given virtues, that free church is a powerful influence for society's good. That's John Calvin, right? That is the, the gift of Calvin within the Western tradition, a free church. And that was radical at the time. Yeah. And when we look at what Calvin wrote about uh, papal authority and civil authority, and even when he was talking specifically out of these passages like Romans 13 and 1 Peter, uh, he's talking about the Christian man who says, I am free in Christ, and therefore I need not listen to anyone any longer, and just wants to like a barbarian, throw off all senses of authority. And then on the flip side, he also was writing specifically when he's talking about civil government in his institutes about the other side where people would just butter up to government and, and, and just let them do whatever they want. And so that's why there's this significant need to talk about the importance of a right civil government, the importance of submission. Uh, when the uh, when the ruling is unjust, the importance of respect and even a degree of submission when rulings are unjust. But then he 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 finishes his long dialogue about this, which is again between the radical antinomian and the bureaucrat. I don't you know, uh, with an obvious conclusion that Joe, you just uh, spoke to, uh, with. If the if the prince is doing something that is commanding me to do uh, to go against God, then you know my obedience to the prince stops. And he and he explores in depth the idea of the conscience. You mentioned that word conscience very briefly. Calvin spends a, a chapter on the idea of conscience and how God has allowed each man and woman on earth to in a moment uh, of obedience or disobedience in their spirit to be clearly taught by their nature, I am either condemned by God for this moment or I am justified by God 
in this moment. And that is what the idea of conscience is. There's a, there's never a moment when I can't have a sense of my obligation to the Lord. And let's pick up on that point you just made about where Calvin says the, the line has to be drawn, because this is often the question, um, and, and, uh, which makes clear that there is no sense within the Reformational tradition that there is a unqualified, arbitrary authority given to civil government. And uh, I, I've, um, some years ago, I, I read a fantastic um, exposition of Romans 13 by James M. Wilson. It's called The Establishment and Limits of Civil Government. It was republished a, a few years ago by American Vision. Uh, this is a, a Presbyterian pastor um, who uh, was uh, preaching and teaching in the early part of the 19th century. He was professor of theology at the uh, uh, Allegheny Seminary. Um, he was appointed professor of theology there in 1859. He, he wrote lots of books on this whole issue of authority, um, the nature of civil institutions, submission to the powers that be, and so forth. And um, uh, this is what uh, he says. And I was reading it again today, and I just thought it was so powerful that it was worth our listeners actually hearing it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, because this, again, is just restating the Reformed tradition, the Reformed perspective, the majority Reformed perspective on this issue. He says, for surely none but an atheist can deliberately affirm that even the law of the land can set aside, weaken, or nullify the authority of the law of God. To the best government, obedience can be yielded only in things lawful, for there is a higher law to which the rulers and subjects are alike amenable. The heavens do rule. There is a God above us, and to him every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And surely if obedience to the best government is thus limited, it need hardly be added that submission to an unholy power does not go beyond this. This also is limited by the law of God. It can only be yielded when this can be done without sin. And he goes on uh, to talk about this recognition in the life of the church. And so let me just continue this quote. Uh, quotation just a little further. He says, indeed, until of late, the duty of refusing to obey the commands of the civil power when they conflict with duty to God was never, as far as we know, denied by any bearing the name of Christian. So when we've heard, you know, comments like, um, my parenthesis now, uh, you know, obey the government immediately, joyfully, totally. This is a departure from the Christian tradition. He goes on, it is certain that the advocates of the doctrine of passive obedience and non-resistance during the 17th century and 18th centuries in England did not go so far as this. They acknowledge a higher law than the enactments of human and of course fallible and often impious power. The first prominent, listen to this, the first prominent enunciation of the principle of unlimited and unquestioning obedience was reserved for an atheist, Hobbes of Malmesbury in 1588, uh, well, 1588 through 1697 was when he was alive, denying the existence of any fixed standard of right and consequently of any such things as virtue and vice, this speculative philosopher resolved all the laws of morality into one, the will of the legislature. Paul did not intend, and he's, don't forget he's expounding Romans 13, Paul did not intend by the language before us to forbid even the forcible resistance of unjust and tyrannical civil magistrates, not even when that resistance is made with the avowed design of displacing offending rulers, or it may be the change of the very form of government itself. There are few in this land, he's writing as an American, or in any free country to deny the right of a nation to rid itself of oppressive power, whether foreign or domestic. The right of revolution for the purpose of throwing off usurping or tyrannical rule need not now and here be defended. That question was settled in England by the revolution of 1688, which I mentioned, when the nation, when the nation rising in its might, expelled James II as an enemy to the constitutional rights and liberties of the people. 
The separate national and independent existence of these United States is the first is the fruit of successful revolution. And where is the American, the American Christian, who does not rejoice in the hope that the principles of liberty will spread and prevail even though they be ultimately established upon the wreck of thrones, demolished or overturned? Does the Spirit of God here condemn these efforts of the nations to rid themselves of the yoke of despots? Does this passage rivet the chains of the oppressed? Certainly not. God denounces the oppressor. And he quotes two passages. Woe to him that, abide, uh, that buildeth his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by wrong. Jeremiah 22, 13. Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees and that write grievousness, which they have prescribed. That's Isaiah 10, 1. And then finally, Psalms 94, 20. Shall the throne of iniquity have fellowship with thee, which frameth iniquity by law? So there you have a concrete exposition of Romans 13, delimiting the authority of the state to the point that he's saying that in the Christian tradition, even the overthrow of tyrannical government in the name of the law of God is approved by God. So uh, let's be clear, you know, we're not at this juncture saying let's overthrow the provincial and federal government. Uh, all we've been talking about is gathering for worship <laughs> as a church. Uh, and that's somehow radical over here because we said, yeah, maybe the church after nine months ought to gather for worship. Now he's saying, look at the English Revolution. Look at the American Revolution. Uh, the God does not endorse the sponsorship and the support of tyranny, of despotism. Where God's law is contravened, where God's word is contravened, we have the responsibility, not just the right, we have the moral obligation of resistance. A quote from Calvin, so that I make sure that I, I got it right. As Again, as he spent an enormous amount of time talking about what civil government is, and then he talks about what you do if civil government is uh, oppressive. But this is how he ends. But in that obedience, which we have shown to be due the authority of rulers, we are always to make this exception. Indeed, to observe it as primary, that such obedience is never to lead us away from obedience to him, to whose will the desires of all of the kings ought to be subject, mm -hmm. to whose decrees all their commands ought to yield to whose majesty their scepters ought to be submissive, uh, submitted. Now listen to this. This is my favorite part. How absurd would it be that in satisfying men, you should incur the displeasure of him for whose sake you obey men themselves? Mm -hmm. Brilliant. All right. And Joe, uh, just to bring us to a conclusion here, why don't you share with us some of the instances that warrant civil disobedience? So obviously, Michael's talked about conscience. That's really important. It's, it's not always easy to make hard and fast prescriptions. Christians, individual Christians, churches, communities have to evaluate and discern those moments when that time has come. Um, the, uh, I think what's important when we assess it uh, is, first of all, I think, have we exhausted to the best of our ability, the other avenues. So let's take the situation with the churches right now. Have you have you written to your MPs and phoned your MPPs? Uh, have you have you lobbied? Have you had have you petitioned government? Um, have you are you filing um, uh, lawsuits to to challenge the legality? Um, have you peacefully exercised your right to protest and so on? And I would say that right now. Um, all of those boxes have been ticked uh, in terms of, you know, the other avenues have either been or are being fully explored. Um, and, and I think that's important. Second of all, I think if we are to entertain real civil disobedience, uh, then it must be governed by first the honor of God and the, 
the glory of God and the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, not because we want to be troublemakers or make a name for ourselves or in any way for grandstanding. It has to be about the honor of God, preservation of his church, the advancement of the kingdom of God. And also we have to make sure that it's motivated not out of um, uh, vindictiveness or vengeance or vainglory, but because we love God and neighbor, that actually we are genuinely concerned for our neighbor. And in many respects, the life of the Institute goes on. Um, we are ticking away pretty normally for us. We're, we're not uh, especially suffering as an organization. We're a think tank. What do we do? We think, we read, we write, we do podcasts, we speak. We've, as a farm, we've been able to do certain things here uh, through the year. Um, but our neighbors, the working individual, the, 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 the blue-collar worker, the restaurant owner, the elderly, isolated neighbor who's so distraught they've entered depression and their health has started to decline, the young kids who at the, the end of the road of one of my elders in an elementary school have slit their wrists trying to kill themselves, uh, the, um, the people who are watching their businesses, their livelihoods, disappear in front of their eyes while Walmart and Costco do a roaring trade next door. That's concern for neighbor. And so for certainly for me, and I know for, for, for you guys, because um, like Michael's gesturing to say something at this point, um, which I'll let him do, um, this, the, you know, in, in many respects for our work, much of it goes on consistently, but that's not so for, for most of our neighbors. So love of neighbor is critical. And I just want to qualify that, right? The, the love of the neighbor is the summary of the final six commands in the Decalogue. The love of thy neighbor is not just a random idea Romans 10. that you can qualify anything, right? right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, in, in Romans uh, 13, 13 verse, ver 10. Yeah, verse 9 and 10, right? Mm -hmm. Do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, do not Sorry, steal, do not 13. covet. And whatever other command there be, may be, like, like Paul's alluding. Uh, yeah, I didn't even go through the Decalogue because you know it so well. So I just, I just want to point that out, that the reason why we're so specific that this is the love of thy neighbor is because we feel like we're following those commandments and not just making up our own ideas of what Right. The love of the neighbor yeah, is. You can't fill the idea of abstract love from the from the world of scripture. Redefine it however you like, and then impose it back on the real world. Right. So, yeah, and here's we end with this kind of vital question in some respects. Um, Calvin and the reformers draw the line at when the state is forbidding what God is commanding, or commanding what God is forbidding. Here's a few of the things that God commands us, requires of us in scripture that we're currently not able to do. So God says, six days you shall labor. For a lot of people, they've been told they can't work. This is a pre-political right. No state gives you the right to work. Right is a, the work is a, is a right and responsibility given to you by God. It's pre-political. Six days you shall labor. We're also told to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. And if anybody is struggling, as we seem to have been, um, or at least some seem to be struggling with the whole idea of when we worship and are we in fact in violation of the Sabbath by not gathering. Um, let me just quote quickly from Leland Riken's book, Worldly Saints, which is an, uh, a detailed study, almost 50% made up of pure citations from the Puritans. He says, the history of the subject, this is about the Sabbath, reveals that the desire to keep Sundays free from work was a form of social action as well as a religious act. The Puritans provided the theological basis for Sunday observance. Thus, though all Puritans were Sabbatarians, not all Sabbatarians were Puritans. That is, they thought Sunday should be a day of rest and worship. The Puritans formulated a multiple biblical basis for Sabbath observance, resting on one day of the week, on one day of the week, was a memorial to God's creation of the world, and, and that was on the basis of Genesis uh, 2, and a creation ordinance. The fourth commandment of the Decalogue made sanctifying one day in seven a moral command. The New Testament Lord's Day makes Sunday a memorial to Christ's resurrection and accounts for the shift from the seventh, the Jewish Sabbath, to the first day of the week. Because Sunday is a day of cessation from earthly labor and a time of worship, 
It is an experience that prefigures the believer's eternal bliss in heaven. But the moral principle that one day in seven should be a day of rest and worship was regarded as a natural, moral, and perpetual principle. So that is the, the reformational tradition. It's the Puritan tradition. So the Sabbath. Paul says, if anyone does not provide for his own, he is denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. So if the state is preventing you from working and providing for your own, it's preventing you from obeying the law of God. Do not give up the habit of meeting together. Well, we've just heard what the, uh, the Puritans thought about that. The Lord's Supper. Whenever you come together, it's the Lord's Supper. The baptism of new believers with their public confession before the church. Laying hands on the sick. How can you lay hands on the sick if you're social distancing? What about calling for the elders? If you're sick, call for the elders of the church. That's what Paul commands his people. We're forbidden from doing it. What about caring for the flock over which God has made us, God has made us overseers? How can you do that over Zoom without entering people's homes, without praying with people, for people, talking with people, putting your arms around people, comforting the afflicted, even at their deathbeds? How are we able to do that? I'm actually pretty tired of hearing how much people are loving their neighbor down Zoom in their pajamas, not incarnationally in terms of their actual relationships with people. And finally, what about bearing false testimony? Do not bear false witness. By the enforcement of many of these mandates and the church's acceptance of them, social distancing, masks, closure of everything, we are participating in a in fundamentally participating in a lie. That is that you are a bag of poisonous chemical uh, uh, of disease. And if you breathe on someone, you might kill them. Don't kill granny, as it were. You know, don't kill your neighbor by uh, shame and guilt for killing people. That is a lie. And we should not support lies. As Solzhenitsyn said, live not by lies. I think Rod Dreher's recent book actually was named after, after that. Live not by lies. So let's not bear false witness either. And I think all of those commands and requirements, and there are many others right now, things that God has commanded us are not being done. So uh, once the courts have ruled, the time is coming, surely, where churches will have to ask themselves and Christian families will have to ask themselves, am I ready for civil disobedience? Mm. Well, thank you so much for that, Joe. And I really hope our listeners find this helpful, as we know many of them are really wrestling with these things right now. And that is all the time we have for today's podcast. This has been the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Again, reminding you that from him and through him and to him are all things. We hope you will join us again for next week's Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time.